Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. All right, church. Well, I want to start the study off this evening with a story I heard about a young man named Frank. Frank was about 17 years old, and he was a senior in high school, and he um, was getting close to graduation. He was really excited about um, college coming up and graduating. He had uh, a bright future, and he was he had some degrees he was going to pursue, and he was really excited about this, and his parents were too, but the problem was Frank was from a poor family, and he was not going to get the financial aid that a lot of his friends were to go to college. They learned early on that he's going to have to work his way through college, and before he could even get to that point, he needed to build a nest egg so he could make it plausible. So day after day, Frank would pray and pray that God would bring the right job into his, his life and that, that he would uh, be shown what to do, and one day his buddy Billy came up, and he's like, hey, Frank, listen. My uncle works in the oil field, and he's got two spots open for us to go work with him. We'll be making like 20 bucks an hour. It'll be great. It'll be perfect for you raising money for college. And Frank got to thinking about this. He's like, you know, I've been praying. It's going to be great money. Um, maybe this is from God. So he took the idea to his parents. He said, Mom, Dad, I think I'm going to go work with Billy in the oil field, make like 20 bucks an hour. It's going to be perfect. And Frank's dad was very reluctant to agree to this because he had worked in the oil field when he was a young man and he remembered the uh, harsh environment, morally speaking, that it was. And he he told Frank, he said, I don't know if it's a good idea, son. He said, "Uh, they're going to treat the newbies a certain way and when they find out you're a Christian, it's going to be even worse. I don't think so. And Frank finally um, showed his dad that he wasn't kidding. He was going to go do this. So he agreed and finally the day came where they were going to uh, drive off into the horizon, him and Billy, and go work in the oil field. And so they waved goodbye. And months passed, several months. And finally, the day came where he made enough money to come back home. And he called mom and dad. He said, hey, I've got enough money. I'm going to go to college. I'm excited. I'm coming home. And so they uh, they said, that's that's great news. And so Frank and Billy drove all the way back home. His parents helped him get his suitcase out of the car and And his dad pulled him aside. He said, listen, Frank, I'm curious. How were you able to maintain your faith? How, When they found out you were a Christian, how did it go? And quickly, Frank answered his dad. He said, Dad, they never even found out I was a Christian. And right then, as he said it, he realized that he had lost focus. Yes, it was important that he go and make money for college, and there was nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves, but he had lost focus of who he was. And so just like Frank lost his focus, Paul is writing to believers in the Corinthian church that have lost their focus. From what I can tell, Paul is writing to believers, or or three types of people in the Corinthian church. Those who are, those who aren't, and those who think they are but aren't. Or as our brothers and sisters that might live a little deeper in the woods would say, those who is, those who ain't, and those who think they is but ain't. He's telling the Corinthians that they need to be of one category, those who are, those who are of the faith, who abide in the Lord. The problem is that many of these brothers and sisters in the Corinthian church were not maturing properly because either they were not sincere believers, they lacked knowledge, or they were simply being influenced by their environment instead of becoming more like Christ. I've heard it said that we can be 
a thermometer or a thermostat. A thermometer is changed by its environment, while a thermostat changes the environment that it's in. And we as Christians are supposed to be thermostats. We're supposed to change the environment that we are placed in. And that's precisely what we're going to see in the Scripture today. So in our study tonight, we're going to see how Paul instructs the Corinthians, as well as us, how to maintain our focus in life. And if you're taking notes, the title of tonight's message is Maintaining the Mind of Christ. Before we jump into our text, I want to get a little bit of background on what's going on here. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus at about 60, uh, 56 A.D. And the city of Corinth was one of the most wealthy and significant cities in the world at that time. It was located in such a way with two main harbors that it, the city of Corinth could control the trade and traffic of the eastern and western seas. So it was an extremely wealthy area that attracted migration from all over the Mediterranean world. And naturally, it was, it was like a smelting pot of cultures, customs, and ideas. A lot like America, I would say. The economic environment of this area would be comparable to America, while the spiritual environment would be kind of like New Orleans. I don't know if you've been there, but it's a very eclectic gathering of ideas, religions that are mixed. It's very, in in that way, spiritual. So one author writes, Many of the fertile cults that existed in the city included acts of magic and sexual perversion as a part of their worship. Corinth's temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, at one time had 1,000 priestess prostitutes within its confines. Could you imagine that? Kissing your wife and kids goodbye. Daddy's going to church, right? That's incredible. What happened here is that on Paul's second missionary journey, he had planted this church in Corinth. He had met Aquila Priscilla, who he worked a day job with for well over a year, and then they were driven out of the area by the religious authorities. And that was, that was Paul's success model, right? He would move into a town, and he would preach the gospel, um, start a church, and then get stoned, thrown in prison, driven out. That's, that's what he did. So Paul continues on his missionary journey and later finds himself in Ephesus when he gets words of divisions happening in the Corinthian church that he had planted. Members within the body were saying, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. And, um, you know, it'd be like people today choosing leaders that are men instead of Christ. They started separating themselves into groups instead of being unified in the body of Christ. That's what was happening. And isn't that just like people, even nowadays? Something good is started by God and then sin creeps in. That's what the Corinthians were doing. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they are saved and united because of the power of God, not the actions of man. Not anything, not teachers, not traditions, nothing but what Christ did for us. And that's where we're going to jump into our text. So let's get into the Word. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but the power 
of God. Paul is saying two things here. Number one, he's saying, when I first came to you, you didn't see me coming in persuasive, fancy words and eloquent behavior. He, he came very humbly. Paul, in the utmost humility, preached about a man who claimed to be God and then was killed and rose three days later. And I don't know, uh, this is considered foolishness to the world, this type of teaching. Keep in mind that Paul was more than able to flaunt his education if he wanted to, but he chose not to and it was strategic. Billy Graham had this to say, When you are born again, several results follow. First, it will increase your vision and understanding. Things you used to laugh at as foolishness, you now accept by faith. Your whole mental process is changed. God becomes the hub of your intellectual thinking. He becomes the center. The ego has been dethroned. Paul could have had ego. He had the ability, he had the education, but he chose not to. Paul, number two, is defining a line of distinction between the wisdom of man and the power of God. In the next chapter, Paul clarifies that the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. It can't even be compared with God's wisdom. It would be like you asking a five-year-old how a rocket works versus asking a rocket scientist how a rocket works. What's the five-year-old going to tell you? They're going to make a noise, right? That's, that's the gist of it for a five-year-old. You ask a rocket scientist, and he's going to bring out, I don't even know the terms, but he's going he's gonna to complicate it because he knows all about it. That, that's, that's what we're talking about here, the distinction. You know, it's actually interesting to note that man's wisdom is just now starting to catch up with God's most basic puzzle pieces. For example, Leviticus 17.14 says, The life of every creature is in its blood. Think about that. The life of every creature is in its blood. Modern scientists have only recently discovered the complexity of how true this is. The complexity of the molecular factory in which DNA is used to produce, produce life still has evolutionists arguing what started it in the first place. They're, they're confused. They, it used to be amino acids and the primordial soup and then, and then lightning struck it and it developed consciousness, but now they know that's not true. And it's because they're just now starting to catch up with God's wisdom. Just now. For many years, the brightest minds of humanity taught that the earth was flat. Yet in Isaiah 40, it says that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its dwellers are like grasshoppers. Maybe that's where Columbus got it. Maybe he was reading Scripture. The Big Bang Theory, God spoke and then boom, there it was. We're just starting to catch up with basic puzzle pieces. There's a lot more examples we could use, but God's wisdom cannot be fully grasped. That's the point to be made. The power of God that Paul refers to here come in verse 5 is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. And it means miraculous power, might, or strength. And we do know that authentic miracles were being used as Paul planted these churches as he went, but this miraculous power that Paul refers to, to here is actually something very different. And that's where we're going to get into verses 6 through 13. And buckle up, guys, because this is a lot of deep Scripture, but um, 
we'll, we'll come back after we read it and we'll dissect it. So let's read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-13. through 13. Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world, who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak is the mystery of God, His plan that was previously hidden, even though He made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the Scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Verse 10, But it was to us that God revealed these things by His Spirit. For His Spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit, and no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's Spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. Verse 13, When we tell you these things, we do not, speak, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using Spirit's words to explain spirit, spiritual truths. Now, I know that was a lot to take in, but Paul is trying to make it very clear to the Corinthians that there are two very different realms of wisdom. Man's wisdom and God's wisdom. Two very different things going on. Now remember our comparison between the five-year-old and the rocket scientist. Paul is about to jump into rocket scientist territory here, except he's not talking about a degree that you can get uh, at a university or anything like that. Paul is talking about a spiritual degree only obtained through becoming more like Christ. Knowledge that this world, a.k.a. five-year-old, can't possibly understand. So let's keep in mind this dichotomy between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. In verses 8 and 9 it says, But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the Scriptures mean when they say, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Guys, the smartest people of every generation have tunnel vision. They can make educated guesses about the future and the past, but the majority of man's wisdom is stuck in time. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul is referencing here Isaiah 64. And in context... That scripture is talking about the mysteries of God they were connecting the dots on surrounding the Exodus and Mount Sinai. But the awesome thing is, is that Jesus has already come. Hindsight's twenty twenty. What God did at Mount Sinai is long gone. Deeper mysteries have already come and have yet to come. Paul is saying our God has been planning this since way back then. And if the rulers of this world had known that, which they should have had they truly been seeking God, then they never would have crucified the coming Messiah. Those rulers were stuck in their own time. They weren't connecting dots in God's time. Had they truly been seeking God, they would have known better. 
I find it interesting in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, it says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come, come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, He's speaking to us, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And that's amazing to wrap your head around. It's important to see that throughout the ages, God gave His Spirit to very select individuals like the prophets. God was preparing humanity as a whole like a young child not quite ready for advanced things. And when the time came, He gave Himself so that everyone might receive His Spirit, advancing us one step closer to perfect unity back with Him. And that's what Paul states in verse 12, and we have received God's Spirit, not the world's Spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. And remember when the disciples, Jesus let them in on the little secret that He was going away. He was not going to be with them for much longer, and, and they were worried. And remember John sixteen seven and 8, Jesus said, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So this mystery of what God was doing from long ago has been building and building. And Paul is trying to encourage these Corinthians to grow up. For the immature believer, he says, believe and obey. For the mature believers, he says, consider the mystery of why we believe, why we obey. Now before we move on, let's get a little deeper in dissecting the idea of God's wisdom and power, how it can be observed. Number one, it can be seen. Everybody, including unbelievers, can see God's wisdom and power. If they so choose to see it, they can stick their head in the sand like I've heard the ostrich does, but it's there for everyone to see. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul's telling the Romans that people are without excuse. Nature itself screams that it had a creator. Consider this chair here. Y'all thought I brought this up here to sit on it, didn't you? It's been tempting. We know without a shadow of a doubt that that chair had a creator. Do we not? Yeah? I mean, aside from the fact of you coming up here and finding the Made in China sticker underneath it, we know, we know that that chair had a creator. I mean, it's not like we'd come up with some crazy theory that you see deep in the woods these trees, they swayed back and forth. And as the sticks fell, over a long period of time, that is, they kind of formed in a way where, you know, it, it was a variant of what we see here, but not quite. And then, you know, fossils and stuff worked as dowels as they held it together, and it took a, a, a more shape that we see here. We wouldn't come up with a theory like that, would we? 
No, we know that that chair had a creator because intelligence recognizes intelligence. And Paul is telling the Romans that. It's plain for all to see. Another clear evidence that we now have in hindsight is prophecy. And I wish that we had time to get into this deeper, but we don't. That's a series in itself. But just a couple quick examples. The book of Daniel was written between 530 and 605 B.C. The book of Daniel predicts in order the rise and fall of four historically known superpowers over 500 years. It's proof. The book of Ezekiel prophesies 250 years in advance the destruction of the city of Tyre and seven very specific things that would happen during that destruction. And what's cool about this prophecy is a mathematician by the name of Peter Stoner tallied up the chances of someone being able to accurately predict not only the destruction but the seven specific happenings and the odds of somebody guessing that and writing it down beforehand is one in 400 million. That's proof. Everybody can see that. The other way that God's wisdom and power can be observed is it can be experienced. But the kicker here is only believers can experience this in this way. Let's jump back into the Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, the unbeliever can see God's wisdom and power, but they can't experience it because they're a natural man. They're not born again. When you're born again, you're a new creation. When you're a new creation, you gain new knowledge. When you gain new knowledge, you start looking less like the world. And when you start looking less like the world, you start to see what salvation looks like. And when people start to see what salvation looks like, that's when the new birth is doing what it was born to do. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The spiritual person. So this is not referring to someone who goes to church more than his fellow man. Or someone more spiritual in that sense. The spiritual person is simply a person who is filled with the Spirit. So if you are saved and abide in the Lord, then you are a spiritual person. I just thought I should lay that out because people tend to throw certain terms in a box and they get really misunderstood. So enough said, let's move on. Check out what Paul is actually suggesting here. He is saying that the believer who is Spirit-filled can judge all things, but can be judged by no one. The word judge here comes from the Greek word anakrino, which means to examine, investigate, or decide. So the spiritual person can look into a situation and see truths and insights that an unbeliever is not even aware of. And on the flip side of that coin, an unbeliever can look into the life of a spiritual person and be completely ignorant of what's really going on. Like when Paul and Silas were singing joyful hymns while sitting in prison. Have you ever thought of what the prison guard was thinking while that was going on? Why are they so happy? That makes sense. Or how about when you have the joy of God when you're going through a really hard time in life? 
It'll be very confusing to the unbeliever. When they see us dedicate time of worship and study on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings, they're confused because they don't realize that what we're doing here is so much more real than the sports they'd rather watch. We don't make sense to the unbeliever. But we, however, we can see the sin in someone's life that's ruining their life and know exactly what's going on with them. We know the cure for their sickness, but they can't see it because they refuse to cross the bridge of unity that God has provided through Christ. Paul continues this distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He may instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul is referring to an unbeliever trying to instruct a believer here, believe it or not. Matthew Henry puts it this way, Who can enter so far into the mind of God as to instruct him, the believer, who has the Spirit of God and is under his inspiration? He, the believer only is the person to whom God immediately communicates the knowledge of His will. You see, there's a sharing of the same mind with our God. Do you believe that? I'm not going to lie, this is a hard thing to put into words. But I can tell you that I've experienced what this verse is talking about. And I know that my brothers and my sisters have experienced what this verse is talking about. And these spiritual understandings that we have with God Almighty cannot be explained to the unbeliever. When we see an increasing number of earthquakes and famines, we know that it's because we are one day closer to seeing the return of Christ. Unbelievers will think that Mother Earth has mad at our carbon emissions when we see society increasing in in crime, hate and division, selfishness, we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Unbelievers will just see another step in societal evolution, but we know better. We see spiritual realities that can't be seen by those who don't believe. Paul is trying to unify the Corinthians by explaining to them that Christians are not to be divided. They should be of one spiritual mind, the mind of Christ. Simply put, having the mind of Christ means that we understand what's going on in the body of Christ. We are a part of that body. Everybody has a head and ours is Christ. And like our own brain tells us to breathe, eat, sleep, drink, etc., So Christ guides the body of believers to very specific and holy responsibilities. Like our own brain tells us to breathe, eat, sleep, and drink, so Christ guides the body of believers to very specific and holy responsibilities. And when one member of our own body is inflicted with pain, our nervous system should let the entire body know about it. That's how it should be. Have you ever smashed your finger? Anybody in here? Raise your hands. This is... Okay, we've got a lot of people who've smashed their finger. I've smashed many a finger with a hammer. And um, let me tell you, it doesn't just hurt on your finger, does it? 
It hurts everywhere. I mean, it radiates pain when you smash your finger through your whole body. You feel it. I spoke in tongues once. I mean, it can get bad. The body of Christ needs to operate like that. When a hand, arm, or foot is injured, we need to tend to that brother or sister or congregation because they're a part of our own body. Something that I've noticed when I see Christians start separating into their little groups is the fact that it's always done with pure motives at first. But then it becomes unbalanced. We'll have a particular part of God's Word that we are drawn to more than all the others. And we'll start to build our theology around that idea. Some groups will zero in on spiritual gifts so much that they'll forget to apply rational thought to everyday life. Some will be so enamored with good works that they abandon their dependence on God completely. And some will push the intellectual side of things so far that their their faith is completely pushed out of the way. I've heard this called Dalmatian theology, inspired in spots. The fact is, this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing in their pagan culture. They were so obsessed with sexual gratification that they invented a religion where they could do these sinful desires as a part of their worship. Think about that. When we start taking things out of God's perfect balance, we start to build our own religion. This is why it's so important that we balance the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we're charmed by. When Christians first started assembling together, they did not do so as denominations. I do not know if y'all knew that, but they did not have like the Baptist Christians over there, uh, the Church of Christ over there, the Pentecostals way over there, and then Calvary Chapel in the middle balancing them all. That's not how it started at first. Being a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus was originally called the way. The way. The way that Christians have separated themselves through denominations, I'm not going to lie, is troubling to me. And that might not sit well with, with everybody that hears that. And I do understand that there are certain heresies we need to watch out for. I do understand that. We need to warn people about certain teachings. But the type of division that I've seen through many denominations is precisely what Paul is rebuking here in the Corinthian church. As true believers, we must unify in the body of Christ. I've been to a lot of churches in my life, Baptist, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, non-denominational. And from what I've seen, there are pockets of true believers in every single one of these churches. However, there are many tares that have been planted among the wheat too. In some cases, far more tares. And this is where we should see a natural separation from carnality among those who have the mind of Christ. Jesus warned in Matthew 13 that there would be tares that would be strategically planted with the wheat, meaning there will be false Christians among true believers. Jesus said that when the time comes for the wheat to sprout, it will also be evident that there are weeds that look like wheat in the mix, meaning you will not be able to tell the difference until both start to come to maturity. That scares me. What do tares look like? They'll look a lot like Christians at first, won't they? They'll act spiritual. They'll have a pretty good Christianese down. They'll talk it. 
They'll pray real spiritual prayers, but they will not be spiritual. Paul is reminding the wheat that is growing in the Corinthian church that they have the mind of Christ, which should result in a progressive unity in the body of Christ, but should also result in a natural separation from the tares. The last thing that I want to do is to discourage any believers that are struggling with sin right now or going through a season in your in your walk. You should know that the difference between a true believer and a fake is the heart of that individual while under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to repeat that because I do not want to discourage a true believer. The difference is between a true believer and a fake the heart of that individual while under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Paul even says of himself in Romans seven eighteen through 20 For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I do not have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I want, I do not... Well, I can't even say that he's so jumbled, he's like, the sin in me. The sin in me, I don't want to do it, but it's part of my carnal nature. And so know that if you're a believer, you can rest in your salvation. We, we, we can always be moving forward, but you can rest in your salvation. You're not a tear among the wheat. You know, the Holy Spirit has an amazing way of giving us warning lights too. Have you ever been driving in your vehicle and you see one of those pretty little lights come on on the dash? Like a check engine light. Do you smash those? You pop them so you don't have to look at them anymore? <laughs> you know, it's funny. My grandmother actually did this. Um, she's with the Lord now, but she had a Cadillac that my grandfather bought her. And uh, my mom's already laughing. She knows what I'm going to tell here. Uh, my grandmother was driving the Cadillac one day and it just stops. And my grandfather, he calls a, a guy to tow it to a mechanic and took it to the mechanic. And uh, the verdict was that she hadn't changed the oil. Like, period. Ever. And, and it stopped. And the engine block cracked. And I, I can just imagine my grandmother seeing that light come on and be like, oh, it's like a Christmas light. And then not looking at it again. Don't smash the warning lights, guys. Make sure you're not smashing those warning lights. The Holy Spirit will show you those. God will often use those to get your attention. When all is said and done, Paul lays out three takeaway points from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Number one is do not rest in the wisdom of men. Whatever that may mean for you. Are you resting in the power of God that lasts for eternity? Or are you resting in short-term conveniences? Maybe you're resting in your finances. If only I could get a little more equity. If only I could build just a little bit bigger nest egg. I could just coast. You know, Pastor Dave Ramsey. Or maybe you're resting in your appearances. 
constantly pursuing this appearance so that people will be impressed. Whether that be a nice house, a nice vehicle, or uh, maybe it's just a legacy you're trying to build. What are you resting in? Number two, recognize that there is a very real spiritual realm all around us that makes absolutely no sense to the unbeliever, even though it affects the unbeliever. The unbeliever is like a person who has cancer but doesn't know about it. They'll go to the doctor because they have a migraine and the doctor will give them a higher dose of Tylenol. They'll go back dizzy and lightheaded and he'll say, go home, get some rest. The whole while they're treating the symptoms, not the disease. Sin is a cancer and it has one treatment. So Paul's second takeaway point is that unbelievers are unaware of these very real spiritual truths. Number three is to know that we have the mind of Christ. Not only are people watching us whose salvation can be altered considering our lives, but God is watching us. Let's make sure we're not polluting the mind of Christ. And I'm going to close with this. Guys, we live in a modern day Corinth. Our environment is pulling us in so many different directions. Let's not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let's not compromise our thinking and conduct for a false sense of security. Let's not sink into the trap that the Corinthian church did. If we had to choose one thing that Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians, it would be this. There are two natures in every single believer. Carnal and sanctified. I had said earlier that the unbeliever is like a person who had cancer but didn't know it. But the thing is, guys, we who are believers also have that cancer. But we know it. The real difference is that we started taking our first dose of spiritual chemo when we were born again. However, in order to be completely cured from this carnal cancer, guys, we must continue taking the antidote day after day. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about works here. I'm talking about abiding. Make no mistake, if we start skipping this cure, the cancer can start growing again. And it can grow stronger and stronger. There's no plateauing. You're either going up or down. If there is one theme that I see clearly from Genesis to Revelation, it would be this. Progressive sanctification. A constant plan of redemption. Driven by love and sealed by blood. Let us stay focused, church, on eternity. Let us stay driven by eternity. Resting each day on the strength of our God, not in our own. Let us not be like those who shrink back, but rather push forward as we maintain the mind of Christ. You know, I heard a a little story the other day that comes to mind right now. There was a quaint little town once full of ducks who would get up every Sunday and waddle out of bed 
waddle to the closet and get their clothes on. Waddle out the door and waddle down the street to their church. They'd waddle down the aisle and get in their pews. And the preacher duck would waddle to the pulpit and he would preach, ducks, we have wings. We can fly. We can fly from that serpent. We can soar like wings of eagles. The Lord gave us wings. We should fly. And they all said, Amen. Then they waddled home. Don't let us waddle home. Maintain the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love You. And we thank You for what You've done for us, Father. And Father, though this world can be unsettling at times, and we're constantly being pulled by this world, by our carnal side, Father, our desire is to serve You. Please give us Your strength, Father, so that we can shine and bring all that we can to heaven with us, everyone. We thank you for this night. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.